Well, if you have a Bible today, you can turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. This is, again, follow-up from what we talked about last week. And by the way, if my accent is hard for you to understand, because someone came up last week and they asked, you know, where are you from? <laughs> you sound different. Uh, I'm actually from Chehalis. I grew up here. So you don't have to ask, and I feel embarrassed. But I do blame my wife for that. We've been married, well, July 2nd will be 10 years of her trying to corrupt my accent. Yeah. <laughs> now I think my wife, she's a great wife, and I love her dearly. So Matthew 28, last week we were kind of taking just a big picture. We are at like 30,000 feet, and we are trying to understand uh, God's mission throughout the Bible. And I said the whole Bible is the product of God's mission. That's God's engagement with God's world through God's people for God's purpose. What was that purpose? It's the redemption of God's creation. The redemption of God's creation. And we saw God with a mission, we saw humanity with a mission, and we really focused on Israel with a mission. They were called to be missional. We are called to be missional. Well, today I want us to talk about Jesus with a mission and the church with a mission. So in the garden from the very beginning, uh, God had a mission to us even before the fall. And then he came to us and he used people after the fall right, to reconcile us back to God. He used Abraham, obviously the prophets, the priests, the kings, all to point back to God for us to be brought back into right relationship with God. And he used Israel. And all those people looked forward to a man, the man Jesus Christ, right, who would provide what we need to be reconciled completely to him. Well, Jesus uh, was sent by God. We know that verse, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his son. He is a missional God. And then later in John, Jesus himself says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. He sends us too. We're part of that same mission. And I think he knew that we needed help. So he said, I'm going to send you a helper. And he sent the Holy Spirit to help us carry out that mission. And then finally, he looked forward to, and he talked about sending uh, God sending himself again, Jesus, to us the second time, and we look forward to his return. And we're going to be brought back finally to that garden. So we start off in a garden, we get back to a garden. So hopefully you like gardening, right? Well, that's the big picture. So what about Jesus and us in that, in that mission? Well, I've chosen uh, the Gospel of Matthew to look at. We're going to come down a little bit. Uh, maybe 5,000 feet. Look at Matthew, then we're going to touch down in chapter 28. And I've chosen Matthew's commission. There are five commissions that Jesus gives, one in each gospel, and then in the book of Acts, you have a commission. But I've chosen Matthew because the, Matthew's primary audience was Jewish. And he picks up on a lot of the same themes from the Old Testament in regards to the people of Israel. And in Matthew chapter 28, isn't just some random statements, but it's actually a conclusion to the book of Matthew. And throughout this book, we see that God's plan is to redeem all people, not just the Jewish people. And he really wanted the Jewish people to understand this, and we need to understand this. For example, in chapter 1, we have that genealogy, right? And for a Jew in your genealogy, you only mentioned men. That's what they're concerned about. But Matthew mentions four women, 
And some of them were Gentiles, and all of them were connected to Gentiles in their story of redemption. And then chapter 2, we have the story of Jesus' birth. And Herod, the ruler of the Jews, he did not worship Jesus as Lord, but rather he wanted to kill the baby. But what do we have in that story? We have the foreigners who come from a foreign, far-off place, and they worship. The Magi, they come and worship the king. Well, we could go through every chapter, and he, uh, Matthew highlights in Jesus' life how he cared for the Canaanites, the enemies of Israel. They're portrayed as people that are in obedience to the Messiah. And then finally, even in chapter 27, before we look to 28, at the cross, the Jewish people are not worshiping uh, God as they should, but rather there's a man that bows down to the ground and says, truly this was the son of God. He was a centurion, a Roman soldier. So Matthew chapter 28, where we pick up, it's actually this summary of what he was communicating throughout the book. Again, we won't go through every chapter, but I would encourage you to, and you see his heart for the nations. So let's go to verse 16, verse 16 of Matthew chapter 28. And we see that there's actually three groups of people that are invited to the mountain. Now, Jesus had many uh, meetings, and after the resurrection and before the ascension, there's only one meeting that was actually called by him, and this is the meeting. And he invites three groups of people, and first in verse 16, we see the 11 disciples. That's one group. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, we know he had other disciples. He appeared to 500 people, and most likely some of those people were there, if not all of them. And if you look in verse 20, he says, behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So that would include us. We're invited to this meeting. So let's go to Galilee on that mountain. Verse 17, it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, some doubted. Now, if you're like me, if you're called to a meeting, that's a religious meeting, you wonder who else is going to be there, right? But notice, it's not just those who respond well, worshiping Jesus as we should, but even those who doubted. And maybe you're a doubter. In, all, in some ways, all of us doubt at times. Maybe you have fear. Uh, maybe you feel underqualified. Well, he calls all of us to that mountain. So wherever you are, the message is for, for us. You know, growing up, I always felt that my name should have been Moses. <laughs> of course, my name is Aaron. And if you remember that story, it was Aaron, or sorry, it was Moses, who was uh, timid and not a good speaker and didn't want to stand up and represent God's people, right? And it was Aaron, or Aaron who was the good speaker and eventually did. I always felt I should have been Moses. My parents are here. They would admit I never liked, uh, I'm not an extrovert, right? Not that I don't like you, but I really don't like people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get energy from just being around a bunch of people, all right? Uh, any introverts here with me? Of course, you're not going to raise your hand, I know. But. <laughs> but God uses all of us, right, in our own capacity because he wants to be glorified. He uses weak people, people that even have doubts, to carry out his mission. So what is this mission? Verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, that being his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
all authority, Jesus says, has been given to him. This is a statement that he is making himself to be equal with Yahweh. Last week, we, we talked about what we are calling missional monotheism, right? Uh, who Yahweh is throughout the Bible is distinct from the other nations. And who we proclaim is unique and universal. Yahweh is the ruler, sovereign, king over all people. And here, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Who gives us authority? Well, who has it all? It's Yahweh. He's claiming to be equal here with Yahweh. Jesus is God. Now, there is a difference between authority and power. Authority and power. Notice he doesn't say, all power has been given to me. He says, all authority. There's actually two different uh, Greek words. Here, he's using one word that means authority. Most of the time, it's translated authority. There's a different word for power, dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite. He doesn't use that word. He uses authority. Now, to illustrate, uh, let's think of football. I know it's not football season, but soon we'll be getting ready for football. I played one year of football. That was all I could stand. <laughs> but I like watching football, okay, American football. And in American football, you have, especially the NFL, you have young, strong men, right? They're fast, they're young, they're strong. They're one group of people on the field, but on the same field, there's another group of people who are quite different. They're old, weak, and slow. These people are called the referees. <laughs> okay, not all referees are, are weak and slow, but compared to the players, they are. And in the game, we know that the referee has the authority to take this powerful, quick, fast person and send him home back to his mommy. If he breaks the rules, the one with authority enforces the rules. They have the power to do that. And so it is with, with God, he has authority. And this plays a lot into mission, right? Proclaiming the gospel. Do we have to fear Satan? Satan has power, but he does not have authority. Jesus has authority, and he tells Satan where he can go and where he cannot go. We don't have to fear the enemy. We've been sent out by the one who has authority. It also means that, that Jesus is sovereign in control of all things, that there are no accidents under the one that sends us out. So as we go out in obedience to him, we can have the confidence that we are placed for a purpose, a purpose to represent him and fulfill the mission of God. Now, for my wife and I, over the last uh, couple years, we've been convicted uh, to help sub-Saharan Africans that are placed in the Middle East to be gospel lights. Now, if you're not familiar with uh, the politics of the region or the reality of unemployment, in sub-Saharan Africa, unemployment's very high. In the Arab world, because of oil, they're very rich and they're wanting to build these large uh, cities. So they hire sub-Saharan Africans and thousands of others throughout the world to come and work in places like Saudi Arabia, Dubai, Qatar, and other nations. And for my wife and I, our conviction by the Lord has really been to reach out to Muslim people, and specifically those that are least engaged with the gospel. So one day as we were in church, a lady that was in the church, she said, pray for me. In two weeks, I'm going to Saudi Arabia to work. And of course, the light goes off into our mind going, wow, that's great. 
course, she was more fearful, right? She didn't have a job. She needed a job. So she was willing to take the risk to go to a foreign country where they do look down upon women, especially women that are not Arabs, and work there. We thought this is not an accident, right? God has strategically placed thousands of believers in areas of the world where many of those people would never come in contact with a Christian. We're not talking about hearing the gospel, even meeting a Christian. Many people in the Arab world will never come in contact with a Christian, much less hear the gospel, but God is at work. And it's the same with you. Your neighbors, they're your neighbors for a reason, right? The people you work with, they're there for a reason. God has placed them in your life to be a witness. Well, what has he told you to do? Verse 19, he gives the instruction. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So he says, go. However, go is not the focus of these few verses. And it's even clearer in the Greek The imperative verb here in these few verses is make disciples, the imperative being a command. Now there's other verbs here, go, we're going to see baptize and teach, but the focus is on make disciples. And the other verbs, those phrases come out of what we should be doing, what we should be focusing on, make disciples. So as John Wiley mentioned, uh, there's a discipleship book, that's part of it, right? We need to make disciples. So he says, go therefore, where should we go? Well, it says to all nations, to all nations. Now, the word nation, when you think of nation, you're probably thinking of the 200 or so uh, geopolitical countries of the world, right? Well, obviously those countries were not there during the time of Jesus when he says this. And in fact, the word here, nation, refers to ethnicity, ethnic groups, people groups, Uh, missiologists, people in the church have tried to figure out, even anthropologists, how many of these ethnic groups are there in the world that have a distinct language, culture, identity. Roughly, they they estimate around 13,000 in the world. 13,000. So Jesus is commanding them to go to these different ethnic groups and make disciples. Now, last week I said, you guys are all missionaries, because if the heart of God is, is to be a missional God, to redeem all the creation, and he includes us in that, then we're all missionaries. But what am I, right? Most people just look at me and think, I'm the missionary. You guys send out me as a missionary. Well, I do fit in in that I go to different ethnic groups, okay? We go over to Kenya, and we work along the coast of Kenya amongst people groups that are least reached with the gospel, Sometimes people will say, well, is Dama really a missionary? <laughs> She's from Kenya, if you don't know. Um, and, and she would, from the biblical definition here of nations, because she's not working amongst her people group. In Kenya, there's 42 different tribes or ethnic groups in Kenya. So along the coast, the majority of ethnic groups are uh, Muslims, and they're unreached, meaning there's very few Christians among them. So in that sense, yes, we go to the nations. You guys are a part of that by sending us. But it also includes you. Because if you do think about Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the commission is also here locally. Start where you are. You need to be a witness where you are, in the surrounding areas, the counties, the states, then even outside of those lines to the nations. So it actually includes you. 
This would be similar to what we talked about last week when God told Abraham that he would be a blessing to many nations. Missional election, right? God elected the people of Israel so that they'd be a light to the nations. And who's elected now in the New Testament, in the New Covenant? Well, believers, Christians, we've been elected. If you confess Christ to be Lord, God has elected you for such. But it's not for you to have a little click and security. What's the purpose? That you would go to the nations, right? That you would share that with as many people as possible. Here's another uh, football analogy. Sorry to do that. I'm still, we're still celebrating Father's Day, right? So we can use football analogies. <laughs> in football, you have a huddle, right? Uh, in most sports, team sports, you have a time where you come together and you strategize how you're going to go out and play. Well, in the huddle, no one watches the sport for the huddle. There's really nothing attractive about the huddle. You don't pay money to watch people bend down and whisper into people's ears. Rather, you pay money so that they get out of the huddle, right? You want to see what happens out of the huddle. That's what's attractive. And then you start thinking, well, what's, what's the playbook, right? <laughs> what's going on? How did they come up with that play? How did they have victory over the team? Well, I think sometimes as a church, right now, we're in a huddle, right? We're in a huddle right now when we come and we fellowship with each other, and it's great, and we need that, right? We read from the playbook, the Bible, but soon we're going to break that huddle, and we go out the door to be his witnesses. We need to be his, his witnesses, and that is what is attractive. The world has plenty of, obviously, buildings and meetings, right? What the world doesn't have are people that are changing the community, and that change comes through the gospel, through Christ, as we live it out. So we're called to go and make disciples of all nations. Secondly, it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when we go, that can represent evangelism. We're sharing Jesus with the people around us. And I would say that is a part of discipleship. In our ministry, something that's helped me is that you look at discipling someone to Christ and then in Christ. There's an important distinction, especially when you work amongst Muslim people, but I believe this is true with all people. You know, for a Muslim, what research has shown, and even my experience with those that have come to faith, it often takes several years from the time the Muslim cognitively understands the gospel to the time that they come out and they confess the gospel publicly. So if they're hearing the gospel, but they're counting the cost and they're not sure, and if me, the Christian, is like, ah, they didn't understand it, I give up, let me move to the next one, we'll lose them, right? We have to be consistent, right? We have to continue to share Jesus with these people, which might make you wonder, well, what does it mean to make disciples? Disciples. What does this mean? Well, I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, a lot could be said of what biblically is a disciple. But in Matthew chapter 4, we see the first disciples that are called by Jesus. It says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Verse 19, and he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. It's a common phrase. My kids, we have a song, we sing about that. But I think the truth here we can grasp 
what discipleship is, what a disciple is. Number one, we see there that he says, follow me. This is Jesus saying, and he's saying, follow me. Now, the word disciple was used back then by rabbis, and the rabbis uh, that taught and the people that followed them were called disciples. So if you learned under a rabbi, you were the disciple of that rabbi or that teacher. In fact, in the Kiswahili Bible, disciple is translated wanafunzi, which literally means a student. Kids that go to school are called disciples or learners. So when Jesus says, follow me, he's saying, you need to be a learner of me. You need to be a follower of me. Now in that day, you remember the story, those three years of the disciples lived with Christ, they were in his life, right? It wasn't just come to church every weekend and hear Jesus talk, but they lived with Jesus. Most of the week, Monday through Sunday, they were with Jesus experiencing who Jesus was, and they were learning from him. Practically, how do we do this today, right? We haven't seen Jesus physically, at least I haven't. Well, one, we study the word of God because we see Jesus in the word of God, okay? We are disciples by seeing Jesus in the word and living out the word faithfully. Number two, we can do this by seeing Jesus in other people. Uh, Paul, I think it's 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, imitate me because I imitate Christ. And Paul had a disciple called Timothy. And so for us, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, you need to find people that reflect Christ and be around them. All of us should have people in our life that we say, yeah, they're discipling me. Okay, I'm learning from them about Jesus. I see Jesus in them. So he says, follow me. Then secondly, he says, I will make you. I will make you. To make this easy to remember, we have follow and let's say form. We're going to come with three words. I'll start with, with the letter F. Follow me. And he says, he will make you or transform you into what you need to be. This is the power of Christ. It's not that you're just learning head knowledge, but you're submitting to that knowledge and you're letting it change you. Yes, you're applying the truth. We're going to see that in Matthew 28 also. But Jesus constantly talked about uh, picking up your cross, denying yourself, and submitting to Christ. He's going to form you. In Jeremiah, I love the, the imagery that's given of Yahweh and his people. He says that Yahweh is a potter, and we are the clay, right? We're really nothing. If you've ever seen a potter make something, it starts off just a glump of nothing, worthless, right? And then the potter on his wheel forms into something beautiful. And that's really us. We're the, we're the doubter, right? right? We don't, aren't anything without Christ, but when we allow him to change us, he makes us into something beautiful. We have to deny ourselves and let him be God of our life. Well, what exactly is he making us into? Well, fishers of men. So the third would be fishers. You're a disciple by making other disciples that make other disciples and make other disciples and make other disciples. This multiplication is a sign of, of health that we need to be multiplying. So not only who is discipling you, but who are you discipling? That's how you know if you're a disciple of Christ. Who are you investing? Who are you reflecting Christ upon that they would see Christ in your life? Well, now we go back to Matthew chapter 28. And we're told that we are called to baptize these people. We reach them, we disciple them to Christ. And by God's grace, 
He saves them, and soon after they are saved, they are baptized. Now, baptism is not a requirement for salvation, but it is a sign that you have chosen to be obedient to Christ and walk in his ways. Now, here's an illustration that's not about football. (laughs) Back in those days, the word baptism was used of someone who would dye a cloth. So you would take a, a rag, say the mother who wants a pink shirt for the daughter would take the cloth and take it to the man who does the dyeing, and they would baptize, they would immerse that dye or that cloth into the dye, and then it would come out as a pink shirt, purple shirt, whatever color they wanted. They were baptized. So in other words, the guy that's doing the baptizing or the dyeing, it starts off one color, it goes down, it comes out a different color. And that's the same with us when we're baptized. We're saying that the Lord is the Lord of my life, right? That I come up red. The blood of Christ is marked on my life. You've received Christ. You're, you're different. And now you're, it's a public confession. Wherever you are, you're wearing red. And for us, sometimes uh, we have to be careful Uh, Back in the day, uh, all the way back to Plato, he made this divide between the sacred and the secular, right? And sometimes we struggle uh, having that divide in our life. But when we are baptized, we're making a confession that we are Christ. The way the Apostle Paul put this is that he would say, I am a slave for Christ. Whatever he did, it was for Christ. And, And that's the way it should be for all of us. You're a teacher for Christ. So the people would look at you and they would see how Jesus would teach and handle the children. Even as a mother, you're a mother for Christ. So people would see how Jesus would be a mother. Uh, If you're a logger, you're a logger for Christ. I'm not sure what loggers do, but... (laughs) No, they cut down logs, right? Trees, trees. They cut down trees. I said I was from here, but that was a long time ago. Now, a brother here a few weeks ago, he was telling me, uh, he's a log, uh, he transports the logs, a log driver. And he was telling me that uh, some of the guys he works with, he would go into their, their truck when they get out, wherever they go. I don't think he was breaking in there, but I didn't ask, but <laughs> we would encourage breaking in. But he would go in there and he would turn the radio station to 91.9, right, where they teach the word of God. And they would get into, that tr- into the truck and they would hear, hear the gospel some way, all right? He's a, he's a truck driver for Christ. He's trying to be missional in various ways so that people would learn about Jesus. Well, finally, in verse 20, he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them. Now, I thank God for Calvary Chapel. We teach the Bible, right? Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible, starting in Genesis to Revelation. It might take 30, 40 years, but you'll eventually get to Revelation. Well, that's, that's a strength, right, of the church, and we praise God for that. However, we, there is a, a warning. We have to be careful. As my friend says, you know, information with, without application will lead to no transformation. And if you look here closely at verse 20, it's not just teaching them the knowledge about God. It says teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. 
That has to do with the application, how to actually live it out, not just knowledge intake, but that we are different by our, our lives. Again, this was a, a constant theme in the Old Testament, right? Missional ethics, that Israel would be distinct because they act differently. People can see the way they live. So we must teach them to observe everything that Christ has commanded them to live it out. So we praise God for the book that you're going through, but we also need to live it out to make sure that we understand that information and take it as we break the huddle. And then finally, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He promises Jesus to be with us. So in verse 18, we see his, his all-powerfulness, his omnipotence, and then we see his omnipresence, that he is with us. And again, this is kind of the bookends to Matthew, because in Matthew chapter 1, you remember the angel comes to Mary at the very beginning and says, behold, you're going to have a child, and what will his name be? Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he confirms that we're not alone, that we will be, he will be with us wherever we go. Now, I, I want to leave you guys with to application, because again, I think the Lord says right here that we need to observe, actually apply the knowledge. Uh, number one, we need to be intentional about this. I'm sure all of us, if you've been in the church, you've probably read Matthew 28. You've heard some of these truths spoken, but we must be intentional or else we're not going to actually apply it and live it out. In our training, what we do every time we train uh, there's actually accountability. So when we meet again, we say, did you share with Saeed, right? And what I mean by that, before they leave, and I would ask you guys, just as I ask you who is discipling you, to actually list, maybe in a paper in your Bible, list those you are discipling to Christ, that is those you are praying for salvation for, and then list those that you're discipling in Christ, those that you're trying to make mature in Christ. Actually write their names down. And then in your small group, or with a person that hopefully is discipling you when you meet them, if it's once, for, once a week or however often, they ask you, did you share with that person, right? Are you trying to share? So there's intentionality. And along with that, like I'm saying, there needs to be accountability, accountability. And that's why the church, one of the reasons the church exists, right? Not just that you come and hear someone give you information to have a monologue, but to actually be accountable to that. We come together and share and keep each other accountable. So my prayer for us as a church that we would see the vision of God and live out the mission of God. And as we go right now, as we break the huddle, may we wreak havoc on the enemy and we will be successful as we look to Christ, and then the world will see our good works and wonder what's going on in here, right? And glorify God in heaven. Amen? Amen. So let me pray, and I think there's one more song. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you sent us out with all authority, that we have nothing to fear. We admit that we are, that we are weak that we lack what we need, but we say that you are everything. So may you be glorified, Lord, in our weakness. Lord, I thank you for this church. Lord, help us to be faithful as we go out, to be a light 
in dark places, Lord.